interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. I'm Neil, a Calvinist from cloudy West Michigan. Uh, I know how to uh, experience gloom, and I know how to cause it. <laughs> Garrison Keillor uh, on the Prairie Home Companion once did a commercial for Mournful Oatmeal. He said, I'm Gregorian chant for Mournful Oatmeal. Mournful oatmeal. It's the oatmeal for people who have never gotten what they wanted, and even if they did, they wouldn't like it. Mournful oatmeal, it's almost like Calvinism in a box. <laughs> That's what you're going to get, and now you have an opportunity to go home if you, you know, don't want to stay. I understand that. I'm very pleased to be with you for the Institute of Biblical Studies. Um, I've been so hospitably treated and um, been a delight to see Ithaca and Cornell University. Of course, I had heard of this wonderful town by the hearing of my ear, but now I get a chance to see it, which is a great advantage. Um, this is a beautiful spot, and um, if you live here, um, it's better than some of the other spots in the country. So, God bless you and congratulations. All day and tomorrow morning when um, I preach, everything is going to be controlled by Colossians 2 and 3. And the prevailing idea over everything is that Christian people are those who have died and risen with Christ. Paul's overarching idea is that when Jesus died and rose, his body died and rose with him. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes. The head goes nowhere without the body. So because he was the, the second Adam, the head of a whole new race, when he died and rose, he didn't do it alone. God saw all of his followers, all of those who are in Christ, dying and rising with him. And then Colossians 3 begins, since you have been raised with Christ, some translations if, but it has the sense of since, since you have been raised with Christ, there the reference may be to our baptism. Paul's idea is that in our baptism we are following the Israelites down into the Red Sea and coming up on the other side. We are being buried with Christ into his death and raised with Christ into newness of life. And then all of Colossians 3 is a way of saying, since you have been raised with Christ already, now keep it going. Keep on dying and rising with Christ. Put to death your old self with all of its lusts and angers and wrath and malice and greed and idolatry, which is part of the old life. Put it to death and let your new self arise like Jesus walking out of his tomb 
your new self clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect harmony. So Paul's teaching in Colossians 3 is that those who have been raised with Christ when he was raised, those who have been raised with Christ in their baptism, are now people who need to keep on dying and rising with Christ. He describes what the old life is like that needs to die, and then he describes this glorious new life that abounds in the virtues of Jesus himself. They overlap with the fruit of the Spirit. And we need to understand that some of the time when Paul teaches about the virtues that adorn a Christian life, some of the time it sounds as if these are sheer gifts from God. Fruit of the Holy Spirit. You have patience, God gave it to you. You have compassion, the Holy Spirit stimulated it in you. But some of the time, he talks as if this is our calling. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility. As if there is something that we need to do, as well as something that God has already done. And I want to talk today and tomorrow morning about, so to speak, our end. What it's like for us to cultivate the virtues that the Holy Spirit has already sown in us, what it's like for us to clothe ourselves with these wonderful, wonderful virtues. And I'm going to do so by talking about four of them in turn. Compassion, first, this morning. Then humility, second, this morning. And then forgiving those who have hurt us. A hard one early this afternoon, but I think with some real hope, because Christians over many, many centuries have thought about how we may learn to forgive those who have hurt us. And then tomorrow morning, uh, in the services with New Life, Presbyterian Church, and Bethel World Bible Church here, uh, I will talk about patience. Patience in Colossians 3 has very little to do with time management. We ordinarily think of patience as, you know, willing to, willingness to stay in the present, to stay put in the present while something is pulling us out into the future. You're 15 years old and 10 months and you need two more months to get your driver's license, and that is pulling you forward. Patience means staying right where you are. Well, that's a great thing, and uh, God bless you if you have it, but it's not what Paul is talking about. When Paul talks about patience, he's talking about having a very large capacity for absorbing irritants without letting them paralyze you. It's like having a great big crank case full of motor oil that doesn't remove contaminants, but it puts them into suspension so they can't wreck your motor. 
So compassion, humility, forgiving those who hurt us, I'm going to say about that, that it consists largely in dropping anger we have a right to. And then tomorrow morning, clothe yourselves with patience. Okay. What a blessing coffee is of a Saturday morning when there's a little to do. Some of us will have seen many, many years ago the film The Elephant Man tells the story of an Englishman who is unspeakably ugly. He's so ugly that he has to cover his face in public so that he won't stop traffic or scare children. For a while, a, a drunk gets hold of him, cages him, and charges admission for spectators to come in and gawk and jeer. And then later on, a physician takes him under his wing and tries in so many wonderful ways to care for the elephant man, preserves and enhance his dignity. And at one point, the elephant man tries to say what this kind physician's compassion for him means to him. He doesn't really have a mouth. He has kind of a hole in his face from which his voice emerges and from this voice opening he says now I feel joy because I know I am loved and then he says surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell with the Lord forever. Now you watch the elephant man being gawked at and jeered at and emotionally you move over to his side. His sorrows become your sorrows. His shame becomes your shame. And when the physician treats him marvelously, the elephant man's joy becomes your joy. In a word, you feel compassion for this human being, this creature of God, made in God's own image. Compassion is a wonderful emotion. It's a wonderful emotion. And all of us have experienced spasms of it from time to time. You watch the elephant man, you want to, you want to raise him up, you want to take him in, you want to protect him from all the gawking and the jeering. You want to enhance him the way the physician does. His dignity makes you proud. Above all, you feel his pain. And you want to protect him from it. You feel compassion. It's a wonderful, wonderful emotion, and we've all felt it from time to time. Unless we have gotten 
coarsened by war, by endless despair and dismay in our own lives, or coarsened by watching daytime television for years, unless we have become coarsened, we all have felt it. Compassion. You know a young woman who has been used up and discarded by her boyfriend? You feel mixed indignation and compassion. On the news, all the time you see children who have been orphaned by war, who join a long list of refugees seeking help in a refugee camp. They arrive, everybody stinks, everybody's hungry and thirsty. Children have to watch their own parents, their providers, get in line and beg. It's a terrible thing for children to see. And you see it and you feel compassion for those children. Or imagine a lighter scenario. Your timid son is performing for the first time in his piano teacher's studio recital in front of all the other students and parents. His prepared piece is The March of the Candy Soldiers. And for a while, he does okay. 30 bars or so, plays pretty well. But then some of those soldiers start to lose their way. And your timid son has to stop and start over. And then he loses his memory again. And he starts over again. And pretty soon, in utter shame, he gets up from the piano, walks over to your side, and sits down. Now the emotion that wells up within you is compassion for your son. You commiserate with him all the way down to your arteries and innards. In the Hebrew Bible, the word for compassion has the same root as the word for womb. Compassion is the sympathy that wants to protect the fruit of a woman's womb. It's a motherly act initially. To feel compassion is what a mother feels for her child. And then to feel the distress of the widow, the orphan, the stranger who is within your gates is to offer your milk of human kindness to people beyond your own family. The wonderful, wonderful example of this classic example in American literature in John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Some of us read it in high school. In this novel, there's a young woman whose name is literally Rose of Sharon, biblical name, but in the pronunciation in her family, she's Rosa Sharn. Rosa Sharn is finally um, with the, her family in a boxcar where everybody is trying to escape the relentless mud and rain there in California. And she delivers a stillborn child. The family does its best to bury the child, and there's really no place to bury the child. 
and then escapes from the boxcar as the water keeps rising and finds a barn on higher ground, and the family goes into the barn, and they find that they are not alone in it. There's a stranger and his son in the far end of the barn. The stranger is so sick that he looks like he's going to die, and there are kindnesses exchanged between the two families. Rosa Sharn is shivering. She's just delivered her baby who died, and she's soaked and cold. And the boy who belongs to the strange man in the other end of the barn brings a dirty comforter over to her, and she is able to cover herself with it. And then her mother, Ma Jode, one of the great, great figures in all of American literature. Ma Jode is full of compassion and justice. Ma Jode looks at Rosa Sharn. Something passes between their eyes. And in the very last scene of the novel, Rosa Sharn crawls over to this stranger who is dying because he cannot take solid food. And she nurses him with the milk that was intended for her baby. A literal showing of compassion. Compassion, I would have said years ago, is the empathetic pity that we show people who are in distress. can't say it that way anymore because the word pity in the English language has degenerated. If you say to somebody, I pity you, you are not offering them any kind of a compliment. The word pity in English has now gained overtones of scorn. So it's useless in a definition of compassion. So let's say that compassion is the empathetic distress that you feel over somebody else's distress. In biblical terms, it's weeping with those who weep. In the Hebrew Bible, the word for compassion is raham, which is cognate with the word for womb, which is rachem. And compassion is literally showing empathetic distress when there is distress in the fruit of your womb. And then it's extended to the stranger, the sojourner, all who are in your purview. Since you have been raised with Christ, clothe yourselves with compassion. Compassion fits people who have been baptized into Christ. Compassion is part of the family uniform of the people of God. And the Lord knows we have plenty of reason to need it. The TV cameras in the last years have shown us terrible things. Just recently, all of our news has been dominated by the terrible strike in Egypt and by the weather across so much of the U.S. And we have had plenty of reason to feel compassion, but it never stops. I mean, there is always war and rumor of war. There are always orphans. There are always people without enough to eat. There are people we know in our own church 
in our own family for whom life has not turned out as they had hoped and they are not making it. And since you have been raised with Christ, you feel compassion for them. We'll say much more later about what that might mean, but there's no doubt that it is a very widespread and wonderful emotion. It's normal for us to feel the pain of others. How else will, the, will their pain come to us? By the way, this is a sidebar. Some of the ancients in the church, in the medievals, wondered and wondered about the compassion of God. It's part of God's pedigree all over the place. God is, you know, full of compassion. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. On and on, God has compassion. But the medieval theologians, and this is a little bit of an in, in indication of how they got themselves into dilemmas and binds, they had a dilemma. They said this, if we can provoke God to compassion, that can't be true because then we would be able to have control over God's inner life and God is sovereign. Can't be. On the other hand, the Bible says it can be. That God feels compassion all over the place. So what, what's the answer? Can God feel compassion? And can human beings provoke God to feel compassion so that we can actually change God's inner life? Back to the grapes of wrath and the force of literature. One of the things that we teach our students at Calvin Seminary in Grand Rapids is that a reason to read great literature is that it can trigger compassion in you. It can, can, it can trigger the hunger for justice in you as well, which will happen if you read a novel like The Grapes of Wrath. But now think, for example, how the abolitionist movement got going in the U.S. What was the book that triggered Uncle Tom Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe? Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote this novel and it reached out and it grabbed hold of the hearts of millions of Americans and it launched the abolitionist movement. Or at least it was deeply instrumental in it. Since you have been raised with Christ, clothe yourselves with compassion. Christians are not the only people who feel it. But Christians have special reason to want it. Christians know that compassion fits people who have been raised with Christ. It's fitting for us to feel compassion, as our Lord did. Christians know that all of these virtues are part of the image of God in us. When you feel compassion for somebody who is hurt, you are like God. 
Compassion is one of the signs that a person has been born again by the Spirit of God. Compassion is part of any flourishing church. One of the ligaments that ties us to each other, that we feel distress over each other's distress, that we weep with those who weep as well as rejoicing with those who rejoice. Compassion is part of God's design for human flourishing, harmony, justice, what the Old Testament prophets called shalom, what we say, what we find in the New Testament as the coming of the kingdom of God. Interesting to speculate, by the way, what happens in the new heaven and new earth when people aren't hurt any longer? Is there an alternative way for our impulse toward compassion to be stimulated? I think so. And we may talk about it later. No doubt that compassion is huge in the biblical portrait of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of what the Gospels tell us. So often the Gospels tell us that when Jesus saw somebody, he was moved with compassion. Now in Greek, it's also visceral. It's not a womb now. It's your large intestine. Splanchnitomai, Greek verb, means to have your innards move. Um, his intestines were moved. We would say, with no more anatomical exactness, his heart went out to her. It's the same idea that something inner moves in you and reaches for the person in distress. When Jesus saw the blind man, when Jesus saw the widow, when Jesus saw a crowd harassed, misled, like sheep without a shepherd, he was filled with compassion. The Gospels tell us over and over that Jesus had a hair trigger for compassion. Jesus told us stories in which compassion figures prominently. A man is on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls among thieves, is stripped beaten, robbed, left for dead. A Samaritan comes along and is moved with compassion, walks over to him, takes care of him, goes out of his way for him, checks back on him. Jesus is pointing to a wonderful, wonderful sign of the kingdom of God in action. A far country harbors a prodigal son. And the day that the prodigal son gets it, the day that he comes to himself, the day that he understands that there is exactly one person in the world who really, really loves him, he gets up and he says, I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned and before he can utter one word of this carefully rehearsed confession. 
his father sees him at a distance and runs out to embrace him and kisses him. Why? Because his father is moved with compassion. Jesus had a hair trigger for compassion. Jesus told stories about people he loved that had a hair trigger for compassion. And so, of course, like all the Christians of all the generations before us, this is a virtue that we want. But questions arise. You know, we're here to think today as well as to feel. Questions arise. Compassion all by itself can lead straight into trouble. Parents who feel sorry for their wayward kids and keep on bailing them out because they feel sorry for them may not necessarily be doing them a kindness. I come from a seminary, so now I'm speaking with a little bit of knowledge, a church that lets into ministry anybody who claims to have been called by God into ministry may not necessarily be doing the church a service. Calls need to be confirmed. And a seminary that feels compassion for a candidate for ministry who has sacrificed part of his earnings and part of his life and part of his time in order to prepare for ministry, but can't look anybody in the face, can't learn what he needs to learn in order to preach, and the seminary says, well, we feel compassion for him, so we'll release him into the church and let him do all of his non-looking in the face and not being able to understand the Bible among other brothers and sisters. No. Not at all. Compassion can lead right into trouble. Uh, you yourselves, I don't know, maybe in Ithaca, but certainly in big cities have encountered panhandlers. They sure look as if they could use some help. They certainly ask for it. And what kinds of mixed feelings arise in you? Compassion on the one hand, common sense on the other doing battle within you. And Christians, Christianity today just had a on this. Christians have varying reactions about how to respond. Compassion is not the only emotion in play when you try to decide whether to give a panhandler a couple of bucks. Aristotle said that we feel compassion only for people who are in trouble, not by their own fault. If they're in trouble by their own fault, to heck with them. I guess we would feel pretty glad that God hasn't read Aristotle. Because the Bible tells us again and again that people who are in terrible trouble by their own hand, think of the prodigal son. 
God feel compassion for? Here's another question. Is it possible to feel compassion for a person without enjoying your compassion a little? Without feeling secretly glad that it's him who needs compassion and not you. That you're the one that has it to give and you don't have to be the one who has, has to receive it. There are plenty of people, by the way, who do not want our compassion. They think of it as a moral handout. They think of it as putting them in a weak position. They would like us to keep it to ourselves. What about such people? Would you still feel compassion for them even though you think they're in trouble? They don't think they're in trouble. Questions arise. Might you feel compassion for such a person but not say so? Because you know how an expression of compassion is going to be received? You have to think about how your compassion is going to be received as well as given? And so, part of being wise as serpents, part of understanding how life goes, Some of us know that there are traps with compassion. There are proponents, for example, of euthanasia who count on compassion to carry their load. If you really cared about people, they say, if you really felt compassion for them when they are really hurting and want to die, you would want to relieve their suffering, which is equivalent to saying that you will help me kill them. Compassion is not the only emotion in play when we are trying to figure out how to act in a godly way. In fact, we all understand that if you and I both feel compassion about a third party who's in trouble, the fact that you and I both feel compassion for this third party does not necessarily dictate strategy for relieving their pain. Two good people can visit a third person who is in distress and have very different ideas about how to relieve it. Does the suffering person need to go to bed or go to work? Should he sue or repent? Would we serve him best by giving him a few kind words or some money or a few firm words or what? Think of a nation like the United States that is called upon from all over the world to provide funds and relief. When the people who decide whether to bring funds and relief to suffering nations in the world sit down at the table to decide 
with limited funds, who is going to get how much? Compassion is not the only emotion at the table, and it shouldn't be. Compassion does not get to trump justice. It doesn't get to trump prudence. If you're on the board of a Christian school, and by the way, where I come from, there are lots and lots of Christian schools. If you're on the board of a Christian school that is thinking of main, mainlining kids with special needs, of course you want to help these kids. You'd have to have a heart of stone not to want these kids. But is it uncompassionate to raise questions about whether we can do it? Whether we have the staff to do it? Whether taking 40% of the class time for one out of 30 kids is the way to go? Compassion is not the only emotion in play when difficult decisions have to be made. Here's a place to remember one of the greatest, greatest texts in all the New Testament. You know, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, called the prologue to the Gospel, have some of the most majestic writing in all of the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and there's not been anything made that has not been made without him. At one point, John writes, he was the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a hard combination. He must have been the only one. We all know people who are full of grace, but they can't bear to tell anybody the truth because they know it will hurt their feelings. So they never do. And we all know people who are full of truth right up to their hairline, but they're so graceless about it that you wish they wouldn't bother. What would it be like to be full of both grace and truth? It would be like Jesus. It would be like Jesus. A compassionate person needs justice to brace his compassion up and to keep it from slumping over into sentimentality. A just person needs compassion to soften his justice so that he offers justice along with mercy. Both grace and truth, one of the hardest combinations in the Christian life. And we need them both. Ranking Nazi officers used to kill people all day and then at night they'd go home and listen to Wagner operas and weep and weep and weep or the distress of some of the heroines in Wagner operas. Lots of compassion. But not for their victims. Not at all. Compassion is not the only virtue on the table. 
Now I've got just a couple of minutes left here, and we need to have time for a little discussion too, and I don't know how this is all going to work out. So I'll say just a little more and stop, and then if necessary I can say a bit more later. How would you gain more compassion if you are a little on the brisk side of the spectrum when it comes to compassion? And by the way, um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Not necessarily a bad thing to be on the brisk side of the spectrum when it comes to compassion. I am the son of a father who from the time he was 40 until he died at age 86 had severe bipolar affective disorder. He was terribly depressed and sometimes he was remarkably high. His wife, my mother, dealt with him for all those years. Of course she felt compassion for him. But there was a business-like way in her dealings with him, and in the end, that proved to be enormously helpful to him. If she had simply crumpled into compassionate empathy at his distress, I doubt that she would have been as much help to him as she actually was. And so, to be a little on the business-like side of the spectrum is not necessarily a bad thing. And yet, all of us want to be sure that being brisk and business-like is not all that we have to offer, that we have some empathetic distress to offer as well. So how do you get it? Well, in the case of all these virtues, one of the things we do is apprentice ourselves to people who have the virtues. Every church has people with plenty of compassion. We can watch them. We can listen to them. We can hear their tones of voice. We can see what triggers their compassion. We can watch in them the combination of compassion and justice and prudence and see how they balance these things out and learn something from how they balance them out. To learn compassion is a little like learning a musical instrument. You need to practice, and you need a teacher. One of the reasons we have Christian fellowship is to help each other with acquiring these virtues, largely by apprenticeship. Another thing a lot of Christians do who want to vivify their compassion is to be sure to spend some time with people who need it. We tend to shrink from this. People with cancer, oh my, what would I say? People who have just lost a loved one and are shattered, what would I do? And here it's important to remember, I think, that with someone who's in real trouble, 
for example, somebody who has lost, lost a loved one. We can't bring their loved one back. Only our Lord can do that at the end of history. But what we can do is bring our love, motivated by our compassion, our tears, our hugs, bring life. Compassion can bring life. Because the bereaved person understands that when we grieve with them, that means that their grief is so important to us that it causes us to grieve too. And the only reason is loving compassion, which can help to raise the dead, meaning the bereaved or the suffering. Since you have been raised with Christ, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Compassion fits people who have been raised with Christ. Compassion is part of the family uniform of the people of God. That's the end of presentation one.